We're in Acts 13 today, but this is the culmination of four weeks of focused prayer. We are a praying church, and we send out a prayer email every day during this pandemic period at least, and, uh, but these last four weeks, we've been praying specifically for four particular things together as a church that God would help us reorient our eyes toward His vision for our congregation. You know, it, it occurred to us in mid-August as a church staff, we had been treading water in a sense. We had been just trying to see, trying to, trying to make ministry happen during a pandemic, trying to adapt. And I'm sure at your work, your place of business, you've been doing the same thing. So you know what I mean, but we, we realized this was, this is year one of a 10 year vision. As, as you've heard already today, we want to see 10,000 transforming relationships happen through the members of first Baptist church over the next 10 years. And we'll talk more about what that means. But so we did, we knew we needed to get our eyes back on that focus. And so thank you for praying along with us along those lines. And today we're going to talk about what that looks like. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear different opportunities to get involved in some of those relationships. And the first one I know is going to be something we've been planning this past week, and that is the, the opportunity to adopt a teacher at Sam Houston Elementary. Sam Houston is just a couple of blocks away from us, right down the street from us. Uh, it's, a, it's a school that with a lot of great teachers, a lot of great families, but not as many resources as many of our schools here in CISD. And so last year, we began adopting that, congrega- or that, that campus, and we sent mentors onto the campus to mentor students, which is exciting. But this year with COVID and all the protocols, we can't send, they, they can't accept on-campus mentors. Uh, so we thought, what better way to show our love for that campus than to adopt teachers? What it means is that each one of you as an individual, as a family, as a group of you would adopt a teacher. You'd be assigned a specific teacher in classroom and you would communicate with that teacher, pray for them. You would send them uh, different things to encourage them, but also find out what do they need from us? What can, what can we do to help resource them? That'll be a way of showing them. Number one, we support you because it's never easy to be a teacher, but especially not this year. But number two, to show that entire campus, there's a God who loves you. And he's our savior and he's yours as well. So be looking for that opportunity over the next coming weeks. We want to be a church that makes a difference in our community. We want to be a church that doesn't just impact the people who come here, but impacts everybody around us because that's the kind of God we serve. So along those lines, let me start by asking you to to ponder this question. What makes a great church? What differentiates a church that's merely okay from a church that's truly great, that's living out its full potential, that is everything God wants it to be? I know we got to start with the, with the obvious. Uh, a great church has to be a church where Jesus Christ is unquestionably worshipped as the one and only God, the one and only Savior. It's got to be a church that stays true to the true gospel, that doesn't deviate from the faith once committed to the saints, the faith handed down from Jesus and the apostles. That's that should go without saying, right? And thank God I've been a part of churches, every church I've ever been a part of, you could say that about. But that alone doesn't make a church great. Some, some would say, well, you can tell a great church because lots of people go there, because people are attracted to the Holy Spirit, they're attracted to the true gospel. So if you see a church where lots of people are in attendance, good things are happening, people are joining, that means it's a great church. And yeah, it does, it does matter, and, and a church that's alive should be growing but you can draw a great crowd without telling the truth. You can draw a great crowd without being, a law, being about the work of God. Some would say it's about the programs, the quality of the programs. Isn't that the way we usually measure 
a church, when we're visiting a church for the first time, I know I, the first thing I look at is the preaching. If I visit a church and the preaching's mediocre, I'm like, man, that's not a very good church, which isn't actually true. I've known some churches where the pastor wasn't a dynamic preacher, but it was a great church. Others would say, no, it's got to be a a worship ministry where you can just feel the Holy Spirit whenever we're standing and worshiping God, or it's got to be a a life-changing student ministry or or a children's ministry that that draws kids to Jesus and and equips families, or it's got to be a church that has a strong missions ministry or strong uh, small group Bible study ministry, and all those are important, but I don't think that really touches on what makes a church great. Some would say it's the warmth of the members. Every church I've ever been a part of would say the strength of our church is we love each other. There's a lot of love here. There's warmth. And that's true to some extent. But in all those churches, there were also people who tried to get in and they couldn't find a friend because everybody already had their friends. And even if you have a perfectly warm and welcoming church where everybody feels welcome, is that really greatness? I don't think it is. That's necessary, but it's not greatness. So we're looking at Acts. We're going to actually start with Acts 11, 19 through 26, because we're looking at a truly great church. This was the church that became the home church of the Apostle Paul, and we're in a series right now about the life of Paul, a man who I think more than anybody other than Jesus changed the world for good. And one of the things that was in his corner that made him the man he was, was he found a truly great church. And it was the church in a town called Antioch. And here's the story of how that church came about. Acts eleven nineteen says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyrus, Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turn to the Lord. So let's just get this out of the way. When it says the persecution that arose over Stephen, it's talking about an an event we haven't looked at in Acts yet. It's the first Christian martyr. Stephen was one of the seven men called out from the congregation in Jerusalem to be deacons, to be leaders. He was stoned to death by a group of his fellow Jews, and a man in the crowd there that day was Saul of Tarsus, approving of it all, and it lit a fire inside of him. Right then, he realized, I know my destiny. I know my life's work. My destiny is to destroy this movement of people who say that a crucified man could be the Messiah of Israel. And his young Pharisaical heart was filled with this, what he thought was righteous zeal. So powerful, so furious, that he literally scattered the Jerusalem church. This group of thousands of people from all points of the Jewish world that had come together to worship Jesus now we're so afraid for their lives, they fled to the, to the vast reaches of the Mediterranean region. And some of them went to this town of Antioch. Antioch was a city 500 plus miles away from Jerusalem, a city of a quarter million people, very, very cosmopolitan, whereas Jerusalem was a Jewish city. Antioch was a city with every kind of person in the Roman Empire. And so the church that grew up there was very different from the Jerusalem congregation. Uh, The Jerusalem congregation was all Jewish. It was multilingual. There were people that spoke all kinds of languages, but they were all Jewish in ethnicity. They were all Jewish in identity. But in Antioch, for the first time, aside from Peter and Cornelius, for the first time, believers in Jesus started sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people who weren't Jews. And so you had these people of all across the Roman Empire coming to know Christ, And you had a church full of people from all different nationalities. 
And when the people back in Jerusalem, those that were left, the core group that hadn't fled, when they heard about what was going on in Antioch, they said, let's check this thing out because we might need to disavow this. We might need to condemn this so everyone knows that's not what we're about. Or maybe, maybe it's of God, so we need to check it out. So they sent a man named Barnabas to see what things were happening. Couldn't have sent a better soul. It says in verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So it's interesting that that's the time when the term Christian gets coined. And it wasn't invented by the church itself. It's invented by the bystanders, by the observers. Specifically, we think by the Gentile observers. Because I think the reason this happened was they knew this group of people of all different religions, or I mean all different ethnicities who are walking around, and all they ever want to talk about is this Messiah, which in Hebrew, I'm sorry, which in Greek is pronounced Christos or Christ. And so they're, as they're talking amongst themselves, who are these Christ people? That's all they want to talk about is Christ. And that gave them their name. They're, they're Christies, I guess. They're Christians. It's sort of a, a way of calling them Jesus freaks. It was an insult, really. But the early church... The people in Antioch owned it. They embraced it. Now, I want you to think about, here comes Barnabas down to Antioch, and I think almost any other person, maybe every other person in Jerusalem, if they had come, would have come to Antioch and looked around and seen Jew and Gentile worshiping together, Jew and Gentile eating together. None of those Gentiles had converted to Judaism. They would have thrown up their hands and said, "This this is blasphemy. We've got We've got to put this to a stop. But Barnabas said, look at what God is doing. Isn't this amazing? Look how great our God is, that he saves far more than we thought were possible. And he exhorts them. You know what that, ex- that word exhort means? We don't use that word exhort a lot. I bet this morning you probably exhorted your children to get ready for church. <laughs> exhort means to inspire, to spur on. See, Barnabas, you may recall if you were here last week, that wasn't the name he was born with. He was born being called Joseph, but the church gave him the nickname Barnabas, a word that means son of encouragement. Encouragement, by the way, doesn't mean what we think it means. We hear encouragement and we think, oh, somebody who gives compliments. That dress looks really good on you. You did really good on that Bible study. And that's fine. But encouragement is something much bigger. Encouragement is a Greek word, parakaleo, that means one who comes alongside you. So imagine you're out for a run and you're trying to make three miles and you're at mile two and you're already running out of gas and somebody comes up beside you and says, listen, I'll run with you the next mile if you'll not quit. Or somebody, you're carrying a heavy load and you can't make it to your destination and somebody comes up and says, I'll take half of that. That's an encourager. That's someone who comes alongside you and enables you to do more than you could do otherwise. An encourager is somebody who makes everyone around them better. Some of you in this room are encouragers. You've encouraged. You've inspired me. And that's a tremendous spiritual gift. When Barnabas, the first time we see him in the Bible is a story in Acts. When he comes from his home island of Cyprus 
where he has received an inheritance from his forefathers, a piece of land that has been passed down generation to generation, and he just sold that piece of land and donated the proceeds to the church. And that inspires everybody else in the church who has the means to do so to do the same. He made everyone around him better. And in this case, in this case, Barnabas comes down, he looks around, he sees what God is doing, and he says, you know who would be perfect here? My old friend Saul. We don't know what Saul's been doing in the meantime, but think about what Barnabas did. He said, this would be great for him. His gifts would be perfect here. And this church would love him. This church would be so much better with someone like Saul. So he puts the two of them together. And for a year, people are getting saved left and right in Antioch. But then along comes a guy named Agabus. We're not going to read this part. Agabus was a Christian prophet. And God had put on his heart something that was going to happen soon. He stood up amongst the church and he said, there's a famine coming. Get ready because in the next few months, there's going to be no food. So be ready for that to happen. Now, let me ask you, if you knew that a famine was coming in this part of the world, what would you do? I know what you would do because some of you have a big stack of toilet paper somewhere in your house right now. You know who you are. The Holy Spirit does too. I don't. But our tendency would be, let's hoard. Let's, let's get food. Let's, let's put it somewhere where no one can get it. Let's put it under lock and key because we don't want to starve. What does the Antioch church do? They don't hoard. Instead, they think to themselves, their first instinct is to think, our friends in Jerusalem, our fellow believers in Jerusalem, they're going to have it harder than we do. Because they're, they're looked down upon by their fellow Jews. And they, many of them can't get work because of the ostracism, because of their faith. And so let's take up a collection and send it by way of Saul and, Bar- Saul and Barnabas so that they can have enough. They're concerned about a church 500 miles away who most of them don't even know. That's the nature of this church. Now let's look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. So it begins to list the five men who were the leaders of the Antioch church, the people who stood behind the pulpit, as it were, that taught the word, that led the congregation. This is, you might say, the church staff of Antioch. It says, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So who are these people? Barnabas, we know, is from the island of Cyprus. Simeon, we don't know where he's from, but we know his race because his nickname is Niger, which is a Greek word that means black. Lucius is from North Africa. We don't know what ethnicity is, but we know where he's from. Geography matters. And then Menaean, this is really interesting. It says a lifelong friend of Herod. We know Herod is a king. Lifelong friend means someone who nursed at the same bosom, literally. So you've got a guy who grew up in a palace, and then you've got Saul, a former religious terrorist. Without Jesus, these five people would not associate with one another. Without Jesus, these five people would have nothing in common, and yet they are the staff ministry team, you might say, of the Antioch church, which tells you a little something about what that church is like. But even that... By the way, I believe that is God's purpose and plan for his church today. If you don't know this by now, that is absolutely what I believe. And don't you think that in this time where there's so much racial division in our nation, if, they, if, if churches were places that were reaching people of all races, that the community would look to us for answers? Don't you think that's what God wants? But even that, even that is not what makes a church great. 
That's what comes next. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now Luke, does, Luke the author of Acts, does not tell us how specifically the Holy Spirit spoke. All we know is the Antioch Christians are in a room together. They're praying. They've been fasting. They're seeking the Lord's will. And suddenly they grow unanimous on this one idea that two out of our five beloved pastors need to go away. Now, I hate to tell you this, but every day some church lays hands on their pastor and sends him away, but not in a friendly way, okay? That's not what we're talking about. This is... Two of the greatest preachers and leaders who've ever existed. This is a church where great things are happening. When great things are happening, you don't want anything to change. I'll tell you what, I don't want anybody that's on our present ministry staff to leave because we've got a good thing going. And yet here's the Antioch church saying, not just, oh no, we're losing Paul and Barnabas, but let's rejoice. God's doing a new thing. What is God doing? God is doing something that was unheard of in their day. These days, if you grew up in an evangelical church, you're used to the idea that at any moment, some young man or woman could stand up and say, I feel called to missions. And we all gather around them and we pray for them and we commission them and and they go off and they spread the gospel in some foreign country or they plant churches or they they, they go someplace else to take the gospel where it isn't. And we're used to that idea. But that had never been done before. This was brand new. In that day, it's hard for us to get our minds around this, people didn't move. You lived where your grandparents and great-grandparents lived. Generation after generation, you lived in the same place unless there was a famine or a flood or, or a war or persecution. Yet Saul and Barnabas are saying, from this day forward, we will be rootless. I mean, this will be our home church. We'll come back here every once in a while to recharge. But we're going to be homeless from now on. What we'll do is we'll go to, we'll go to a city and we'll, we'll go to the synagogue on the first, on the first Sabbath day. And, and we'll get up and we'll preach the word of God. We'll open the scroll and say, here's how this passage from the Old Testament tells us that Jesus, the Nazarene, is our Messiah. And we'll keep doing that every Sabbath day until they get tired of us and kick us out. And then we'll take whatever converts we've made and we'll go out to the Gentiles and we'll start preaching the gospel to them. And then once we've got a critical mass of people and we figured out who has the most potential for leadership, we'll disciple them and we'll equip them and then we'll lay hands on them and call them the elders of the church. And then we'll move on. And we'll never establish fruits. We'll never have our own home. We'll always be on the move, always planting churches because there are hundreds and hundreds of cities in the Roman Empire. And in every one of those cities, they think that Caesar is God. And we want to create a little outpost in every one of those cities that says, Caesar's not God. There is one God and his name is Jesus and he died for our sins. And and you might think that doesn't sound like much of a plan to change the world. Because we're talking about tiny little groups of people in cities of thousands. We're talking about a movement that preached a crucified Messiah against the greatest empire in the history of the world. Yet, ask yourself the question, how many of you could name more than one or two of the Caesars? You've got to be a serious history nerd to be able to name more than Julius and Augustus and maybe one or two others. And yet... Almost everyone on the planet today knows the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
a man who never held office, a man who never wrote a book, a man who, when he ascended to heaven, had 120 followers to his name, and a third of the planet calls him Lord. I think, I don't know, this is just my opinion. I think Saul and Barnabas' plan worked. I think God knew what he was doing when he called out these two men. And I think the church at Antioch was completely obedient because they didn't know what the result would be. All they knew was God said, let these two men go. And they did. And they rejoiced in doing it. So here's what I'm talking about when I talk about a, a great church. The true marker of a great church is that it gives itself away for the sake of the kingdom. The true marker of a great church is that it gives itself away for the sake of the kingdom. And I can't tell you how rare that is. In fact, I'm going to tell you a little story that you're probably going to wish you hadn't heard. When I was in seminary, you know, doing my master's work, and then 10 years later I went back uh, and started working on a doctorate, both times I noticed this weird phenomenon. And that is... Every time I would meet somebody who I was really impressed with, a fellow student that I thought, this guy is going to make a great pastor someday. This, some church is going to be so lucky to have this guy. He is on fire for the Lord. He's smart. He's dynamic. He's a good communicator. Every time the same thing would happen, I'd, I'd ask him, so, you know, where do you want a pastor or what, what are you hoping to do? And every time I'd find out, no, I, I, don't, I don't want to be a pastor. I, I want to be a church planter. And I'd say, well, but you'd be a great pastor. Why wouldn't you want to pastor a church? And he'd say, every time, he'd say, well, because I grew up in church. I know how it works. If you're a pastor, you spend 99% of your time just trying to keep the sheep happy. You spend all your time ministering to people who are already saved. But I want to reach lost people. And if you want to reach lost people, you've got to start a new church. Because churches start, start to turn inward after four or five years. And so, so I want to start a new church that's entirely focused on reaching lost people. William Temple said, The church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of non-members. Isn't that a great quote? I love it. But is it true? Is it true of us? See, I look at First Baptist Conroe. And I see a church with a rich history of giving itself away. This church has been here 129 years. I don't think any of you have been here 129, have you? So you look really good. But over that period of time, countless churches have been planted. Missionaries have been sent out around the world. People have gone out to serve God in vocational ministry of all kinds. And Thousands and thousands of people have, have moved to other places, just like the people who planted the church in Antioch. Not vocational ministers, but people doing what the world would call secular jobs, but it became a ministry because they took the gospel with them. And God himself only knows how many thousands of people have been baptized in that baptistry back there. This is a church that has given itself away time and time again, but... But the gospel hasn't changed. People are still just as lost as before. But the way you reach them has changed. And I've got to tell you this. Some of you recognize this. Some of you are just starting to recognize. When I was growing up, and and many of you who are my age and older, you would say the same thing. When I was growing up, here's what a gospel-based, soul-winning church looked like. It was a church where every Sunday the pastor preached the gospel. 
And so the way people got saved was lost people out there in the community, when they came to the end of their rope or when they were seeking answers, they would go to a local church. And if they came to a church where the gospel was preached during the invitation hymn, they'd come forward and they'd accept Jesus right there in front of the church and everybody would rejoice. And then if that church really wanted to go above and beyond, they'd have a weekly visitation program where everybody would gather on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night or a Wednesday night, and they'd go out knocking on doors, and, and the pastor had already trained them, here's what you say, here's how you share the gospel. And they would knock on a door, and the person would, amp, would open, and, and they would start their little pre-planned presentation, and that person would accept Jesus. And then more people would be added to the kingdom of God. And then in the summertime, they would have what they called a revival meeting, where they would hire an evangelist who would come in and preach for a week or two weeks, and they'd hire a song leader who would come in and and have special music, and people would get saved at that. And for generations, that's how churches reach their communities. But you know what changed? Lost people don't come to church anymore. If you're out there in the community, and you don't know Jesus, and you reach the end of your rope, and you're seeking answers, the last place you want to be is a church. I wish it weren't the case, but it is. And and occasionally there will be lost people who will come to church, mostly because one of you brings them. And if you're doing that, hallelujah, keep it up. But even that is getting harder and harder. As Some of you tell me, I've got this lost coworker. I've got this non-Christian friend and I keep inviting them and they won't come. Don't give up. Keep trying. I'm just saying it's not as common as it used to be. And if you've wondered why we don't go knocking on doors anymore, the last time I was part of a church that did that was over a decade ago, and we had to stop it because it was just me. After a while, people quit coming because no one would let us in. You'd go knocking on doors, and people wouldn't come to the door anymore. The the culture has changed, and we don't have revivals anymore. The last time uh, a church I pastored had a revival meeting was the first year I pastored, 1996, because... Church is recognized, we pay all this money, we do all this work, and the people in the pews are our own members and people from other churches who want to hear preaching. Lost people aren't coming anymore. The truth is, most non-Christians today will not be won by anything that smacks of institutional organized religion. It's just the, the culture we're living in. So now it's going to be harder. Now it's going to take more work. Now it's going to take more commitment from each one of you. Because the way they're won now is by you investing in their lives. They won't listen to me. They won't pick up a a gospel track. They won't turn on a, a, a preaching on the radio or television. But if they know you, if you're their coworker, if you're their friend, if you're their neighbor, if you're their, their kid's baseball coach, if you are someone they know and you invest in their lives, if you are there with them for the long haul, if they see a difference in you, an integrity in you, a joy, a hope in you that they don't see anywhere else, if they experience love from you that they're not getting anywhere else, then that will open a door. And that's why we're about transforming relationships That's why we're going to keep on planting new churches. That's why we're going to keep on sharing the gospel. We're going to keep on giving to missions. In fact, our our upcoming budget, our proposed budget, we're going to ask you to vote on in a couple of weeks, has an increase in the amount we're giving to missions. 
But my hope is that in the days to come, the members of this church won't think of Saturdays and Sundays as the time I go and hear a sermon or the time I go and see my friends or the time I go and have this great worship experience that gets me all charged up. No, it's going to be, that's the time that I go and I get equipped so that I can be a witness to the other parents in my kid's soccer uh, league. That's the time I go and get equipped so that I can treat my boss the way Jesus would because frankly, I think my boss is the son of Satan himself. That's the time I go and get equipped to give answers to my roommate who's an unbeliever or my coworker who's a skeptic. That's the time I go to get equipped to live out my faith in the presence of people that God has brought into my life so I can make a difference in them. And those are the transforming relationships we're hoping to facilitate 10,000 times. Not all of those relationships will be with unsaved people, but many of them will. And many of those people will come to know Christ because if they just got to know you and saw the Jesus in you, they would. And that's our goal and that's our plan as a church. We measure our church not by how many rear ends are in seats, not by how much money is in the bank, not by how big the building is, but by how much of an impact we're making on our community, bringing peace to the chaos in our community, one heart, one family at a time. See, when Jesus started his public ministry, he did things very differently than you and I would. There were times when Jesus would accumulate this great big crowd. Any human pastor, any, any non-Jesus kind of leader would have been jumping up and down for joy, giving high fives to everybody. Jesus would look out into the crowd and say something intentionally harsh to run off most of them. Or he would say to his disciples, we got to get away from these crowds. Let's get away by ourselves for a while. Who does that? Jesus wasn't interested in being a celebrity. He knew we needed a savior. And that's why he said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave himself away, the ultimate example of giving himself away. And his only reward for it was us. He died to redeem us from death and from hell. Hallelujah. But so much more than that, he died to redeem us from selfishness. He died to redeem us from that old self that focuses only on what we want and refuses to give itself away. And let's just face it, guys. We're in church. Let's be honest. You can be outwardly a great Christian. You can be in church every time the doors are open. You can tithe. You can memorize scripture. You can refuse to use dirty words. You can be in every way outwardly a good Christian and be the most selfish person on earth. Jesus wants to change your heart, our heart. He wants to make us people who cheerfully, joyfully, lovingly give ourselves away as a matter of habit. And he wants to make us a church that does that for the sake of the kingdom of God. 